You know, it's quite remarkable that the Apostle Paul was actually the first formally official government-sanctioned persecutor of the church. I mean, we don't think of him in that way, but we find that he was the first one who was actually a card-carrying licensed persecutor of believers, and he did it with a great ambition. It was something, obviously, he could never forget, especially once he came to Christ on his own. But it really reflected often in the way he addressed the churches, how he saw the churches. Many of them had been the objects of his attacks and imprisonments. Some of them would have known people that he had taken their life or caused their life to be taken. For example, when he writes to the Galatians, he says in the very first chapter, he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. He goes on and says, They only heard the report. The man who had formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Now, the word persecute is actually one that appears frequently in the New Testament, not so often in the Old, because the idea of persecution was really something that was formulated in a different way through the lens of Christianity. In fact, the word that's used here, dioko in the Greek, literally means to to run swiftly after someone to harass them or to trouble them, or mistreat them, or to abuse them. You know, it would be kind of like you're a Supreme Court justice, and you have all these people yelling and screaming things outside your house. That's a form of persecution. That's the way it was first viewed. Our English term refers to simply hostility, harassment, and to treat somebody in a poor way, ill treatment, in other words. It's interesting because as Paul looked at this, this thing that he wouldn't have seen as necessarily a negative actually becomes part of his personal story. And ultimately, it's the very thing that led him to understand the gospel of grace. Now think with me for a moment that the idea of the gospel of grace in so many ways had to percolate up from the inside because of the grace that he was shown after he had grasped the gravity of his own sinfulness. When he writes to Timothy, he says in the first letter, he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, yet I was shown mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then further on, he says, here's a trustworthy statement, something that you can build on. A statement that deserves our full acceptance, he says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal eternal life. His point is so clear. He says, there is no one beyond God's saving grace, as is evidenced in the fact that he saved me. And so, in a way, what I'm really asking you to do is to begin to make kind of a little bit of a mental shift, because when we think of Paul, we think of St. Paul the Apostle. He has a church in London that's named after him, this massive imitation of the Vatican, actually, in, in London, and this massive church is called St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, I think if Paul were here today, he would go and 
chisel that sign off the rock because he would never want to take that kind of glory. But we have this kind of imprint in our mind that Paul is a saintly, godly character who, who didn't really quite touch ground and didn't need a flashlight at night because he had a halo to guide him. But the simple fact was that he said, if you want to look at bad characters, I was the worst. You, you couldn't be any worse. I was a violent man. I was a, 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 a terrible, hurtful man. I was driven with such a mad passion. And that's why he said to the Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God and by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. You see, what's even, I think, more amazing in the sense of a cultural context is that Paul was able to recognize himself as being a bad person. You have to think of a cultural world where people didn't see themselves as bad persons. They saw other people in certain contexts as being bad, but unlike today, they didn't see their own selves as being a bad person. That whole concept came from the fact that he had been such a persecutor. Because in his world, persecution in this context would have been viewed as a virtue, not a vice. So you think in our day and age where we find people calling bad things good, and that's a unique cultural experience. Well, it's not. That's a human nature attitude. We, we all tend to do that. That when we come to Christ, we suddenly realize, especially if we start reading the Bible, that we're in deep weeds. I mean, I know that when I came to Christ, there were all sorts of things that were part of my life I never thought twice about. And then I started reading the Bible and going, oh, I am in trouble. I am in deep weeds here. I, I have done these things and I'm guilty of them. And I never realized that there was anything wrong with them until I see it here in black and white in front of me. To most of the Jews and the Gentiles of that world, persecution was good, it was godly, it was noble, it was necessary work that needed to be done. Remember Jesus said to the apostles in John 16 in verse 2, he says, a time will come when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Now contemplate that for a little bit. Let that sink in a little. That they will take your life and then feel good about it because they have been doing it in service to God. Paul admits, this is who I was. He says he was motivated by that very fact. He says that I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as you are. So as a consequence, I persecuted the followers this way to their death. Now, again, this is so hard for us to kind of get our minds around because we are conditioned to think that anybody who persecutes another is a bad person, except we don't often cause, call the things that we do persecution. We may call it their just desserts or this is justice or they're getting what they deserve. <clears throat> it never really occurs to us that we might be on the wrong side of that equation. Historian Thomas Holland, who himself is an atheist, which interestingly, he, he's an atheist, and yet he says that all of our Western ethics, the ideas of right and wrong and morality and truth and so forth, 
are derived not from the old world. They're derived from the Christian heritage. And he says, I very proudly cling to my, the ethics and the morality of my Christian heritage, although I myself am not a Christian. But he said, when I studied the ethics of the ancients, I realized I didn't want to live in that kind of world. I wanted to live in a world where God says, love your neighbor and pray for those who despitefully use you. But he makes this comment. He said that when the gospel was presented in the Roman and the Greek world, he says, nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of Paul's contemporaries. The notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to the ruling universe by inflicting in punishment, not suffering it themselves. In other words, he says, you have to understand that there's a mindset that rules a culture that can't even get their mind around the idea that a god would die for you. A god might kill you if he didn't like you, and in fact, every time something terrible happened, they wondered, what did they do to offend the gods? My wife and I were watching last night this new movie that's come out called 13 Lives about these children, 13 kids who are trapped inside of a, a cave and it flooded in Thailand. And the whole story is quite an amazing saga how they rescued these kids. But the thing that got to me as we were watching it is how people were gathered around the shrines and asking their nature deities, their animus, the, de the gods of the forest, to forgive these boys for whatever they did to offend them to allow them to be put into this life-threatening situation. And that kind of thinking still pervades much of the world, especially through Asia and parts of Africa. We call it animism, the idea that there's all these spiritual entities in nature and you have to be careful that you don't offend them because if you offend them, then bad things will happen. And oftentimes you know you offended because something bad happens. And so it has to be because you offended the deity. And so they offer sacrifices. They go through all these efforts to appease them, to make them happy. In fact, as I was looking at the altar, they had all sorts of foods and things are standing there. And right in the middle was a full bottle of orange Fanta. <laughs> so apparently these deities really like orange Fanta. But to see the Gentile world understood things in exactly this way, and, and explaining the repeated attacks that came upon the church by mobs and others, we read Paul's story that he's got crowds coming after him everywhere he goes. In the mind of the vast majority of peoples, the idea of worshiping one God to the exclusion of both the emperor and the local deities was dangerous. They called it atheism. The Christians were accused of being atheists and they, by their actions they were inviting vengeance from jealous gods who basically were demonic personalities. Therefore, it was in the minds of most people a sacred duty to rid the city of anyone who might offend the gods. In a way, you could say it was a form of self-defense. So that the early church writer Tertullian, writing in 196 AD, said, if the Tiber rises too high, that's the river that flows through Rome, or if the Nile too low, the remedy is always the same. Feed the Christians to the lions. Yet from the very earliest days, we find that 
persecution did not hinder Christianity. It actually appears to have furthered it. And that's why in the case of Paul's persecution of Christians before he was saved, we read in chapter 8 in the fourth verse of Acts, it says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And the idea is a picture of being scattered like embers from a fire, that if you take the embers in your, and you spread them out into the dry grass, that doesn't bring the end of the fire, but the spreading of the fire. There was as if these, these guys were carrying a spiritual form of COVID-19, that everywhere they went, they were super spreaders. And this, we find, continues through the entire period as evidenced in a letter written by Pliny the Younger to Emperor Trajan in the year 112 AD. Listen to what he said. We're talking about 112 AD. Jesus was crucified in 33. We're talking just a half a dozen decades after Christ's resurrection. He says, many persons of all ages and sexes are being brought into this perilous the contagion of this superstition, referring to Christianity. It has spread not only through the free cities, but into the villages and the rural districts. The temples have been deserted. The sacred rites have been allowed to lapse. And he then added, vast numbers of people might be reclaimed if only they were given the opportunity of repentance. And then he goes on to explain what that opportunity looked like. They were given a choice to renounce their faith in Christ, to publicly sacrifice to the emperor and to whatever local deity they were honoring. And if they didn't, then we just execute them. So the threat of execution was how they would try to bring them to repentance. Why would they threaten to kill them? And the answer is supplied by Satan in the book of Job when he says to our Heavenly Father about Job, he says, a man will give all his life for his own life. He'll give up everything he's got in order to save his own life. And yet, Job didn't. Nor did many others, like the aged Polycarp, who was the, the disciple of the apostle John, a bishop of the church of Smyrna that we read about in the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches. Smyrna literally means to be crushed. There's only two churches in Revolution that, Revelation that Jesus speaks about favorably, and that's the church of Philadelphia and the church of Smyrna, and both of them are the churches who are under intense persecution. Now, the others like Ephesus and Laodicea and Sardis, so forth, they weren't really going through any real significant hardships. Life was pretty good for them as Christians in that culture. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they had accommodated the culture so much that they no longer stood out as being unique and distinctive. But these two churches did, and Polycarp, who was the bishop of that church, was ultimately arrested, commanded to renounce his faith, and when he refused to do so, he was tied to a stake and burned alive. The records say that as he was on the stake, burning to death, rather than crying out, his hands went up and his eyes went up as if he was ascending into heaven. 
But when the consul of the Roman consul came to him and said, you've lived a long life, why don't you just simply throw some grain on the altar and call it good and then you can die in your bed? You're 86, why should you spend your last days being tortured? And his answer has become classic, really. He says, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so they lit the torches and burned him to death. This is a church that Jesus said in Revelation chapter three, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The whole topic of persecution is one that is difficult for us in this culture and in this age to grasp. I mean, the uniqueness of the American experience means that most of us have really a very limited view, if any at all, on the issue of persecution. You know, I mean, if uh, somebody upbraids us for not using the proper pronouns. And I'm not talking about your English instructor. I'm not sure we teach the English language anymore in school, do we? That's it. But we view persecution as something that happened in the past or something that happened somewhere else. The truth is that it has never stopped. I mean, sadly, martyrdom remains one of the key hallmarks of Christianity worldwide. It began with the burning of Rome in 64 AD and became after that a regular practice of Roman politicians, a way to blame any and every disaster, both natural and man-made, on the Christians. Because they're not worshiping our gods right, therefore the gods are punishing us. It's their fault. And there were at least 10 different major persecutions over 200 years that made Christians the focal point of their anger in their eye. We're believed that a minimum of 6 million Christians died at the hands of ancient Rome. Yet in the end, we find that by the time we get to 250 AD, half the Roman Empire has converted to Christianity. And the Roman Empire was an empire of 60 million people representing 10% of the world's population. So that here you have the most significant population, the most economically and technologically and advanced and militarily advanced empire the world had ever seen. And most of them are Christians. So many are Christians that finally they have an emperor who himself is a Christian. And what does he do? He legalizes Christianity. He makes it legal to be a Christian. I love reading the story from the histories of people like the ancient writer Eusebius who says the first time they gathered these pastors and bishops were coming in. Many of them had eyes gouged out. They had scars and burns on their bodies. They were missing hands and limbs that they had suffered at the hands of their persecutors as they hobbled in having survived ages of torture. And the question that people ask all the time is, how did Christianity not only survive, but how did it prevail so that for the next 2,000 years, it became the governing ethos 
of the Western world in the world that's most advanced, fair, and just on the planet? Well, Tertullian once put a very simple answer. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, I really love that statement as long as it's talking about somebody else's blood. But importantly, martyrdom was not simply limited to ancient Rome. I mean, it's estimated conservatively again that after Jesus' death on the cross, there have been at least 70 million Christians who have been martyred and followed in his footsteps because of their faith. What is so often surprising to us modern listeners is that the 20th century saw the highest death rate of Christians and the 21st century seems to be following at the same pace, if not increasing. Beginning in 1900 with the Boxer Rebellion, the Chinese slaughtered everybody who was a Christian because basically they said Christians were bringing the Western curse upon the Chinese world. And that was a reason for their oppression by the Western powers. We know of at least 200,000 Christians that were killed in that period. In 1915, 1 1.5 million Armenians were killed by the Muslim Turks, something that the United States has just acknowledged in this last year as actually being historical fact to the ire and irritation of the Turks. The Nazis, most people we know about their killing of the Jews, but do you understand that they killed at least 1 million Christians as well? That is the Christians who would not comply with Nazi dogma. The Soviet Union slaughtered some place between 15 and 30 million Christians, especially during the time of Stalin. And we know that at least a million people have been killed by the Chinese Communist Party, probably many times higher. Even such an obscure guy like Idi Amin, who was a dictator of Uganda, killed at least 300,000 Christians. They were his primary target. Even today, it's estimated there are 100,000 Christians who are martyred for their faith every year. In, in a place like Nigeria, 4,000 Christians are martyred every year. It's happening every year, year in, year out. Over the last 12 years, 43,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. Most of us don't know where Nigeria is or why we should even care. But what's really amazing in all of this is that when you look at the growth of Christianity in the world, it is growing faster in the places where the opposition is the greatest. And it's becoming weaker where the opposition is the least. Now, we might wonder, why in the world does God allow something like this to happen in our wonderful modern world? And the answer is, as Jesus said, in part, that it's really the path or the cost of discipleship. Jesus said in John 15 to his disciples, as he's waiting to be arrested in the garden, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hates me. 
Now, I think that many of us have to have kind of a conceptual adjustment because we have this idea that the world will love us so much because we're so kind and gentle and gracious and forgiving and merciful and generous. We have so many good works and contribute so many ways that the world is just going to love us. Jesus said, you have to understand, they're going to hate you inherently. They hate everything that you stand for because just as it was in ancient Rome, they think your way of thinking is strange. They think they are being virtuous. They're doing the right things. They're stopping you from making people feel guilty and ashamed for their natural expression of rabid immorality. And how often are you saying, well, you can't say that being a transsexual is wrong or a homosexual is wrong or that adultery is wrong or that fornication is wrong because first of all, you have to realize that we're animals and we can't help doing what we do. But secondly, you're making people feel bad. You're making them ashamed. And it's interesting, the Bible says the problem with you is you don't have enough shame. You, there's certain things you should be ashamed of. If you lie, you cheat, you steal, you commit sexual immorality. If you murder, you hate, you destroy, you should feel ashamed. And yet we find a generation who has so rationalized their sin that they actually glory, as the prophet said, in their shame. They take pride in what they do. They feel good about it. And Jesus said, you have to understand, if they come after you, it's not because they object to the logic of your position, it's because it interferes with the objects of their passion. We have a generation growing up that has the emotional maturity of a two-year-old who wants what he wants and he wants it now. That's why when Jesus talked about following him, he says, if anyone would come after me, he has to begin by denying himself and then he has to take up his cross. Now, the apostles and the disciples had no, no illusions about what that meant. I mean, they probably wished Jesus had been more careful in his wording. What do you mean? I mean, taking up our cross. Uh, you know, couldn't you have said, deny yourself and take up a part-time job? That, you know, I, okay, I'll do that. No, take up your cross. Because they saw the cross being lived out in a very real way every day. They, they saw the people being executed. They could walk through the city as Jesus was hung in a place that was a crossroads that people would see as they came into the city and they could see his body wounded and beaten and scarred and bleeding and dying. It was a common experience, a common way that people were punished. And to the Romans, it was so lowly that no Roman was allowed to be crucified. Like Paul, because he's a Roman citizen, they had to be sent to Rome and tried by the emperor and then have their head cut off. Quick, simple, and easy. At least that's what I hear. But crucifixion could easily last two to three weeks as a person literally withered away in great agony and pain and suffering, and so no Roman citizen could ever be crucified. That was left for the lowliest of the low. And so when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to not just deny yourself, but to pick up your cross and follow me.
to go where I lead, to, to do and to say and to be whatever I call you to be. It's only as you and I begin to really kind of reduce that down to the basics of our own life do we have even begin to grasp the implications. And we, and we begin to confront very quickly all sorts of uh, limits that we put on exactly how that's going to work out in my life. It's, it's a little bit embarrassing in your own personal life when you begin to look at and realize, you know, there are certain areas where I've just said to God, you're not allowed to go there. <laughs> don't look in that closet. Don't, don't turn in there. That's, that's really not for you. It's kind of like what we've said as we've told the FBI, we've got a padlock on that one. You can't go in there. But Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, here's the implication. Because if you stopped there, we would already be in a significant territory. But he goes on to say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. The losing of my life, the letting go of my life, the surrender of my life to him. He says, if you do that, you'll find your life. You'll find the real meaning and purpose and design, the wonder and the joy of your life if you do that. The secondly, one of the things that Jesus told us is the gospel is inherently divisive. And here again, we, we wrestle because we want to make the gospel so attractive and so appealing to so many people that we're willing to even really modify it a little bit. We'd like to kind of take a little bit of the roughness off the edges so that, you know, people, I, I call it stealth evangelism. I mean, I learned that from Nacho Libre, you know, where you sneak up with them with a pan and they shove their face in it and get them baptized before they have a chance to say, oh, I don't want to be saved. I believe in science. I'm glad somebody else watched that. I only watch it once in a while. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just feel like wearing stretchy pants. I don't know. You know, it's like guys do these things. But Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? <laughs> no. He said, division. He says, one's own families will be divided one against the other. Mothers against fathers, sons against daughters. It's just children against their parents. And he's isn't saying that we're coming to stir things up and create problems. He says, you have to understand that when you take such an exclusive position of saying Jesus is the only way. He's the only one. There is no name under heaven by which a man can be saved. That you're going to offend people by saying that because they want a broader concept. I learned the first time I began to go to India that when I would talk to a crowd of a pagan idolaters, which they were, that they were more than willing to accept Jesus. They would just add him to the other three million gods they were already worshiping. But when you said to them, you must deny and reject all other gods and worship Jesus alone, then people began to wrestle. They were allowing, willing to allow him to be another prayer object when they had tried all the other stops along the way and none of those gods had done. They were willing to pray to Jesus. 
But to say to them, you can't even acknowledge these other gods anymore. You need to pray to Jesus alone. Well, that became a stumbling block. That became a barrier. The thirdly, Jesus said, it's really how he deals with the lukewarm church. Historian Andrew Walls put it this way. He said, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually, it becomes virtually dormant in those places. You know, it, it becomes the Easter Jesus, the Christmas Jesus, that we look at and we Honor is certain seasonal symbols. But you don't want to do, use those occasions to speak to people about the fact that they're going to hell if they don't deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow Jesus. Well, that's just, that's over the pale. We want to make Christmas services and Easter services these kind of comfortable meetings where we get together and we stay away from the hard, controversial subjects of the day. And we just talk about good vibes, good feelings. The kind that I get when I listen to old Beatles songs. Good day, sunshine, doo -doo -doo. and suddenly I get this real nostalgic little buzz that runs through my system. I don't know why we don't sing that at Christmas. <laughs> because in some ways we are so sanitized in how we do things that we might as well sing those Beatles songs. <clears throat> I remember back in the days when the seeker sensitive church was really big and Books like Marketing the Church had become very popular, and, and so many of us were running around figuring out how do we sell the gospel the way Madison L Avenue sells underwear. You know, if we could sell our, you know, stuff like Calvin Klein did, the church would be filled with people. So how do we do that? And it was interesting that many churches started playing secular rock music at the beginning of their services, and they made sure that their worship songs always had that same kind of secular edge because if there's anything we wanted to show people is that we were hip, we were cool, we were relevant. Even though we got Jesus, we haven't become squares. We didn't become square, we became obtuse. <laughs> and I love what Os Guinness said. He said, there's no faster way to becoming irrelevant than striving to be relevant. Because culture is only relevant in a moment, the gospel is relevant forever. The gospel is relevant because it hits the same key issue that men are lost without Christ and they're heading to a, a hellish eternity if they don't repent and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. The history of martyrdom in the church is marked by people who would not back away from that belief even at the cost of their own life. And that's why I say that one of the reasons I think God allows persecution is because 
It's got to be God's most effective evangelistic tool. When the missionaries were thrown out of China in 1949 by the communists, there, were, there was probably four million Christians within China. Today, the estimates are as high as 100 million. And the more intense the persecution comes against the church, the faster the church spreads. So that now 400 million Chinese have resigned from the Communist Party. And many of them are choosing to follow Christ. Today, 50% of the African continent, some 692 million people, profess faith in Christ. Then in Asia and South America, the church spreads, and as it does, persecution against them grows in frequency and intensity. But as it grows in intensity and frequency, it grows in converts as well. So that most people don't realize this, but Christianity is the largest, the fastest growing religion in the world. Everywhere except in our part of the world. Europe and the United States and Canada, Christianity is, is shrinking. It's getting smaller and smaller. Persecution shouldn't surprise us because wherever Satan feels threatened, he counterattacks. I mean, Satan has limited resources. He's not like God who controls everything. He, he only has so many resources, and so he targets them very efficiently. I think that in terms of efficiency, he probably is the most efficient being in the universe outside of God himself. And so wherever the church begins to grow, it begins to come under intense persecution. Wherever the church becomes really kind of mollified and kind of easy and, and looking for our best life now, that church doesn't see persecution unless you speak out against the sins of a culture. And Martin Luther put it so well. He says, if you don't teach about the issues of the day when you preach the gospel, you are no longer preaching the gospel. Revelation 12 tells us in verse 9, he says, that great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, was hurled to earth and his angels with him, and the dragon was enraged. So the question is that in the age where the dragon is enraged and he focuses all of his energy against anyone who will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without apology or compromise. How do we respond? He says, goes on to say about the saints, he says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. The blood, in other words, that's the grace of God that was shed upon him and the forgiveness of our sins. By the word of their testimony, they stood on the scriptures and its truth. And lastly, he says, they did not love their lives so much as to shirk from death. Naturally, every generation of Christians yearns for and prays for days when they can worship freely and do so safely. Despite all the efforts to change the narrative, 
America was founded in large part by people who just simply wanted to be free from the oppression of the government's insistence that they worship only according to the rules that they passed down. They came here to be free. They risked their lives. They faced all sorts of danger because what was tantamount to them, what was more important than anything else was that they could worship their God openly and freely. They could live their faith with a full, clear conscience before God. That's why the Constitution of the United States, the only one, our Declaration of Independence, it's the only one that begins by saying the First Amendment of our Constitution is the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, the freedom of religion, the freedom of worship, and that the government will do nothing to abridge that freedom. That's why it's there. Because that, above and beyond every other issue, was central to the consciences of the founders of this nation. But here's a real great irony. The best of times in terms of conversions has often come where at least externally for the church, it's been the worst of times. The church has always grown the fastest and the furthest, not in seasons of tolerance or acceptance, nor when we are powerful or when we are wealthy, but when it is persecuted and oppressed. Which is why Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna are so pertinent. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. You will suffer persecution. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you your life as your victor's crown. It explains when the apostles are arrested by the Sanhedrin and confronted about their preaching of Jesus to the people. That it says that when they had beaten them and commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go, they departed the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, not ceasing to teach and preach Jesus Christ. We still have a great deal of freedom in this country. And if you don't think that there are some very concerted efforts to reduce those freedoms and to limit them and to make your faith so private that nobody else will know that you have it. You can believe anything you want as long as you don't talk about it. So that there are many Christians who are being canceled. I was just reading about the end of a five-year lawsuit by a Southwest Airlines flight attendant who was fired from her job because she stated in her own Facebook post that she did not support transgender identity lifestyle things. And Southwest fired her. Five years the suit went. She just got $5.2 million in settlement. And I read post after post after post after post of flight attendants and pilots saying, this is happening to us all the time. And we're being disciplined, we're being fired, we're being put on furlough because we simply say, as a Christian, I disagree with these principles. 
Persecution is already here. It's happening in all sorts of entities. Some of you have experienced it on your jobs. Some of you decided I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I don't want to lose my job. But the fact of the matter is that as we bow to these pressures, we give them more empowerment to continue to take away our pressures. Now, aside from the fact that the FBI bent over backwards to give uh, Donald Trump a, a, a campaign uh, uh, commercial, um, <laughs> I just, you know, I think these guys got to get bigger computers because <laughs> they make really, really dumb decisions. But I don't care what your position is, it's really like, wow. But you do have to understand that if they can do that to people, like former presidents, how far down the line is it going to be before one of those 86,000 new IRS agents is going to contact you and say, what's this about church contributions? What's this deduction here? It doesn't take much. And it wouldn't bother me except the IRS just bought 45,000 assault weapons and 5 million rounds of ammunition. That's going to change the dynamics of that audit. <laughs> or the fact that half the people they audit make under $50,000 a year already. But they're just going after the billionaires. And I say this because you have to understand it's changing around us. The rights and the freedoms that we have to, to worship and do what we do are being taken away rather, rather quickly. But that's not really the heart of the issue. I'm not sure that's totally avoidable. What is more my concern as a pastor is when they begin to restrict your ability to talk about Jesus openly and publicly. When they begin to threaten you with dismissal or other sanctions because you want to worship God. How are you going to respond? Are we just going to go, well, they're the boss. None of us relishes the idea of having to deal with litigation and things of that nature. But there comes a point where there is no opportunity to litigate anymore. And we have to remember when they take the freedoms of one of us, they've basically taken them from all of us because you become the precedent that they'll use for taking somebody else's liberties. I would simply say, friends, that today is not the time for us to go silent. Today is not the time for us to become invisible. Today is the time for us to become bold, confident, assertive in our faith. Okay? And that's why I've used this occasion to announce my Desire to run for president of the United States. <laughs> Honestly, I've never understood why anybody wanted that job. <laughs> You'd have to be cognitively, oh, never mind. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, I ask in the name of your precious son, Jesus, that you would give us the confidence and the courage not to be ashamed of the gospel. 
You said if we are ashamed of you in this world that you will not, you'll be ashamed of us in eternity. Lord, we want to be bold. We want to be polite. But we want to be clear that we believe in you, that we are committed to you, that we want to follow and seek your face, that we refuse to run and hide. We refuse to be silent. We refuse to close our doors. We refuse to stop doing what you've called us to do or being who you've called us to be. We just simply refuse. We will continue to note that those who do such things that you forbid and that you call perversions and abominations, that they will experience eternal death and not to tell them that is to as bad a lie as the serpent told Eve. Help us, Father. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to be disrespectful, but we do want to be truthful. And we want to speak the truth in love, but we want to speak the truth. Help us, Father, to do both. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.